I think that there is this inherent wound that comes from as much as nonprofits are big and cool and becoming more like businesses, there is still this thing about scarcity. Sure. And that thing about scarcity is like being the ugly child in the family. And we're just lesser. We're just not, we can do things scrappier. We can have less people. We can pay them less. And that creates its own wound. It creates its own wound for the people who were there. Oh, for sure. Right. Then creates all sorts of behaviors that perpetuate themselves. And it's so fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so dysfunctional. And by the way, scarcity is the marketing plan. Yep. Yeah, for sure. If a nonprofit is being abundant, something's wrong. Right. Imagine if the marketing plan was, let's go out of business. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at KarenGoldfingerBaker.com. My guest today is James, Jamie, or as I know him, Jimmy McNeil. He's an educator, researcher, and PhD candidate taking a bold look at sheroes, heroes, villains, and victims, another way of describing nonprofit founders. This is one of those conversations in which we lose ourselves let a whole lot of humanity roll in and fill the space with meaning and love. Grab a blankie or take a walk or a drive. You're in the best place here in the Trauma Hiders Club. Jimmy, I'm so glad you're here. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm here. here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think, I think the moment for me was when you said to me, you know how I knew you were doing an amazing podcast? Yeah. This is what you said to me. I know. I'm waiting for you to fill in the rest of the blank. When I listened to it and I said, fuck you. Yes. Fuck you. You like, I, you did it first. How, why did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, here it is. Now you're doing it too, because here we are together. I knew that I actually, from the moment that I heard it the first time, and I do like, we'll, we'll talk about like how this happened, like in the background, because I knew this day would come, but like 
I knew that we would have this conversation eventually. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be like, I want to be on this podcast. We have to talk. Mm, love that. I love that. And here we are. Here we are. Here we are in 2022 doing the thing. So here you are on the Trauma Hiders podcast. Where I've always wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> in the Trauma Hiders Club. What do you want to hide most right now? Oh, well, I don't know if I'm hiding it well, but I'm super nervous. Mm. I am, I've made my living talking in front of people for 35 years. And the, the thing is, and I tell people this all the time, I'm literally fucking out of my mind the first three to five minutes. I, I don't know my name. I don't, I, I can't, and I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm going to do something really embarrassing. And you know, based on, re- on my history, I have done almost everything you could possibly do with a <laughs> mic in front of people. So like to get ready for this, I sat at the piano like 10 minutes and that's like how I, mm. how I like bring myself in. So hiding that this feels like a really big deal. Nice. Nice. What did you play on the piano? I've been working on this Tchaikovsky song interesting Mm. um it's called none but the lonely heart Mm. and uh i usually don't uh, attack songs as complicated as this like your your hands are crossing and but it's really it's captured my interest and Mm. so i find myself sitting down at the piano at least you know 35 40 minutes every day just sort of chopping through it and uh, today for the first time i played it through all the way but there were some errors but just being present. Yeah, really cool. Really nice. Well, here's the thing. There are no mistakes in the Trauma Hiders Club. No. No, there aren't. And by the way, if you feel there are, this is, this is the place for them because this is a place of love and forgiveness and surrender and okayness and acceptance and all the things. First of all, I love the idea of a club for trauma. That is just hilarious. I know. Uh, Because it's a club that we all belong to, but nobody wants to. Right. We either marry the trauma or we divorce it. But I really was resonated with trauma rule number two. Uh, Talk to a professional. Mm -hmm. Uh, You say uh, you must talk about your trauma with the therapist, counselor, or a trauma-informed coach. Trauma fights back if you keep it from seeing the light of day. Trauma will punch its way into every area of your life if it sits in its own pool of soupy rage. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah. That is the thing. You know, when I, when I thought of Trauma Hiders Club, I thought of the movie Fight Club. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Well, there were two things, actually. There was the movie Fight Club, Nobody talks about Fight Club. The rule, you know, the right, the rule of Fight Club is nobody talks about Fight Club. And I also thought of Drama Club. <laughs> they may be the same thing. Right? Like Drama <laughs> Club in high school. Sure. And I kind of like brought them together. But really, Trauma Hiders Club, I thought, was me and my people like, and then I realized was all of us. Mm-hmm right? This exclusive, this elite club of high performers, Mm -hmm. you know, with a secret invisible card 
<laughs> you know, like sure. a like a thumbprint that could get you in. There's a password. There's a password. Exactly. Exactly. It's a sneaky easy password. Yeah. Right. It's called parents. Um, <laughs> if it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> right. Right. I've had. I can't remember which guest it was. We were listing all the. You know, if you don't think you're you have trauma, you do because you've been in like gym class. It could be like the red ball. Oh, totally. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the textured red ball. It's not just red. Yes. It's that, it, that thing that could imprint on your face. Anyway. Yes. It was drama club and it was fight club. And it was actually my lived experience. Yeah. Not only my childhood lived experience, but the lived experience of me, my people, my clients, all, all of it. Yeah. Tell me, Jimmy, what is something about you that blows your mind? Ooh. Um, well, well, first of all, the first thing that blows my mind is you come from a place in my life where you call me Jimmy. Mm. That is a very select, oh. very special, very unique period of time in my life. Mm. There's a lot of Jameses in my family. So uh, I became, I was Jimmy and your sister calls me Jimmy. All the people who I love back there, my, and my sister calls me Jimmy. So just hearing that makes me aware of how much shit has transpired in my life. I realized I didn't even ask you like, no, why would I ask? Well, there's no reason to like, right. there, like there's, there's like your grandfathered in, right. <laughs> like I couldn't take that away from you. It would be too painful for yeah. you and for me, right. uh, because like, what's, what's, what's Ruth going to call me? And, right. you know, right. Uh, Deborah, who uh, I still miss every day, Deborah Constantini, I still hear her call me Jimmy in my, in my head. So I, I wouldn't want to lose that. But I think what, what's currently uh, blowing my mind, one of the things we were sort of talking about right before we started recording is that I have never been more prepared for this moment in my life. Mm. And that blows my mind. Mm. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we sort of like the mechanics of stuff that we were talking about. But, and my answer to you was yeah, done, check, 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 check. Because the last seven years, I've been really focused on completing my PhD in business psychology. And I'm in the final throes of that. Like I'm counting the weeks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's at 16 weeks so far. Whatever I thought was going to happen to me or what this process was going to be like, I I imagined that I would be integrated in in my community, my, my, my learning community. I imagined that I would be teaching. I imagined that I travel across the world. I, I imagined all those. And I, I did, I, I got to do all of those things. And I attend the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And I remember it's an online program, but I remember back in 2017 when I first started, I got my master's there as well. I walked, at, there was a, a conference in Chicago and the school was hosting a reception. And I walked right up to, uh, <laughs> I'm an introvert with extrovert tendencies. Mm. When I'm outside of myself, it's because something really, really matters uh, more than than my, whatever my fears and insecurities are. I walked right up to the chair of my department, shook my hands, I'm James McNeil or Jamie McNeil, and I don't want to be a 
a student just behind a screen. I want to be involved in this school. She immediately gave me a job. And one of the things I get to do is work with incoming scholars. So I've spent the last three years, and as it's wrapping up, it's sort of blowing my mind. Ooh, cool. Everything that's that I've accomplished, I'm starting a new program, I've presented to the UN in a live summit. I've, I've done some pretty amazing mm. things. Jimmy would be really shocked. Yeah, Jimmy would be really shocked. So Jimmy would be shocked that Jamie or James? James, Jamie. Yeah, is presenting to the UN. Totally. Snaps, brother. <laughs> totally. <laughs> wow. When you entered our world as Jimmy, what was your mm. job? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I had just, I was leaving Delaware State, deciding not to go back. And I was 19. And the only thing I was prepared to do in my life was, I, I'm a classically trained clarinetist. So mm. I thought I was going to play clarinet, but you have to wait for like in an orchestra, you have to wait for, there's two, you have to wait for somebody to die. Yeah. <laughs> but I should have played violin because there's like a hundred of those fuckers. Right? <laughs> so I took a job at a office automation copier company in Chicago where I met your sister. Yeah. I was at the time, I was just like the office manager. Is that what you were? Yeah. I, I typed a hundred and something words per minute. They gave me a job. <laughs> I was like, literally, come on. <laughs> but I, that place was amazing. Uh, uh, those people are still like, 35, 40 years, still a big part of my life. Mm -hmm. I count it as my finishing school. Right. This first place I saw an openly gay person in, the, in like, like 1984, 85. And that's how I knew it was okay to be myself. Oh, Don Lineweber, what an amazing human being. The organization that he cre created, that's where I met your sister, mm -hmm. who was not one of my favorite people at first, right, right. but has become someone who I love because she, her, her standards are huge. Wow. What? It, it was like an academy for you. It told, I say it was a finishing school. Yeah. Like every, every professional ethic that I hold dear has its origin in that time. In yeah. My life. And you've got to be who you are. Totally. Day one, day one, like John, John Lever, he's like six, three. Yeah. Hey, what's your story? I'm like, ah, ah. what it means for me to be like this boy from the Chicago South side, lower income. We lived in a prod housing project at yeah. one point to have had that trajectory. I, I am the first person in my family. My grandmother, my late grandmother would be so surprised and, and happy. She died before, uh, she died in 2019-18. She knew I wasn't getting my PhD, but I'm the first to get a terminal degree. And so I'm the eldest grandchild and the youngest grandchild, my cousin is getting her PhD at, at the University of Cincinnati. That's so she got him bookended. Yes. That blows my mind. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> and a beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. What are you nerding out most on right now? Oh, oh I am nerding out right now on research and particularly my dissertation. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, right when the pandemic happened, I went to go work for a nonprofit 
I had worked for them as a consultant, an executive consultant, a year prior. And there were some issues with the founder. And I certified, I wrote my report, and I, I thought that, you know, this is certainly an interesting case, but, you know, after a while, you get a good sense of people, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, they hit the right notes. Uh, she seemed contrite. Uh, there seemed to be a connection, she, like she seemed to be you know, forthcoming and all of that. So, all right. But there's something that didn't sit well with me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It didn't sit oh, well. I know what you mean. <laughs> so it, it didn't sit well to the point where I, I did something that I never do. So on the follow-up, instead of having a follow-up over the phone, which I would have, which I ordinarily do, I was already on a work trip. I've spent the last 10 years as a road warrior. So I was on the roads like 80, 90% of the time. I was already on a trip, had it sort of a day off. And I got on a flight just to go there to see this client in person. I just had to put like it all together. It didn't sort of fit. So put it all together and wipe my hands, move forward. You know, another client. I get an invitation to come work there. I know the board wants the this founder to step down. And so I'm invited to go there and maybe as a COO in, in nine, nine, 12 months, become the CEO. And in that period of time, when I look back based on like what the initial focal issues were as articulated by the board, and then what I experienced, mm. it was like stereophonic. I could not have been more wrong. Mm. Like I missed it. I really missed it. And for like 45 or so days, I just was, I couldn't get my footing. I like nothing seemed right. I, I didn't trust the, the, the dynamics. There were lots of red flags. At one point they were, we decided to separate from chief officer in the company. And I, I was vehemently against it and I had to walk them out. And that person said, the founder is suffering from founder syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I had never, I had never heard of it. I was like founder syndrome. So I go home, I read it, check it out. And it was the first time in my life where I read something that was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. Mm. It's sort of this weird mix of gaslighty, really poor boundaries, unreliable flights of like rage or helplessness that just was really hard to get my wrap my hands around. So this is the founder the, the founder caves in these ways. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pandemic time, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I am experiencing this for real, or is it like, is this just because the world that we were that now is our normal is like, think of it like March 19th, March 20th, mm. like what the world was then. And within 90 days, I had seen enough. I'd seen enough that I was able to make a recommendation to the board. And, uh, you know, th- there's some serious issues. The, the organization should probably be in conservatorship and things just spiraled out of control mm-hmm. and it turned out okay I'll, here's the point i discovered that 
this issue of founder syndrome is a hidden problem in nonprofits mm. and that I'm not the only person who's experiencing it or who had experienced it. And suddenly research became real. It wasn't like I was writing a dissertation to get, you know, to check the box. I'm, I'm really interested in finding out a real issue. And particularly, I think how this relates to trauma so because I personally think that every person on the planet we're a blank slate. Babies come to the world, open, loving, and then the world comes and fucks us up, right? Mm -hmm. And then the process is to find your way back. I know that this founder is a miracle, right? And my, my sister likes to say, like, every villain has, has an origin story. Right. So they didn't start out that way. Something happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I imagine what happened is that life hit her a full tilt boogie. I imagine that there were things that she never imagined she would have to deal with. I imagine there are some things that happened to Janet's parents that became part of her unwritten story. I imagine that she made all of the youthful indiscretions that everybody makes and gathered and collected all of the emotional collateral that we do along the way. And in the middle of all that, she's just trying to find love and acceptance, just like everybody else. Everybody else. Exactly. It's interesting. What occurred to me is that the desire was one of ego and not one of service. Yes. I mean, I, this is, isn't that the struggle? And perhaps that is what could be at the root of founder syndrome. Absolutely. Right. Cause there's a difference. There's a, the ego is I'm going to do good in the world service. You can't be an ego and service at the same time. You just cannot, it's impossible. Well, tell that to all of the leaders, <laughs> but yes, they are antithetical for sure. Right. I mean, you can have an ego, but you can't serve at the same time. The thing is, I think, is that really the Western world values charismatic leadership. We've put a high premium yes. on charismatic leadership. Um, that that leader who, you know, like, again, I love fairy tales. It's like the Pied Piper, right? Mm -hmm. So the Pied Piper was hired by the town of Bremen, Bremen I think, to rid, rid the town of rats. And so he used his magic flute or lute and led the, and the town didn't pay him. So he used that same power that in one instance was doing good, can be turned in a way where he led all of the children out of the town never to be seen again. And like most fairy tales seems to be rooted in some truth. Some people say that the, the plague happened or they, they were sold into slavery or, but yeah, it's, that's a perfect example. Right, right. So where within an organization, whether it's business, nonprofit, where do you imagine the founder's syndrome and trauma intersect? I think where it intersects has to do with sort of what gets rooted in the founder's desire an attachment to the organization. It becomes, as you say, like a part of uh, what my research has turned into. It, it, they, they start to 
have an unhealthy attachment mm -hmm. to the status, uh, even a little bit to the trauma. Nonprofits occupy a much bigger space than many people would actually believe. Right. Uh, they contribute over $1.2 trillion to the world economy. 99% of nonprofits have up to 500 people or less. Mm. Economists consider any organization that has any sector that employs 10% of, of a country's population as a major, nonprofits occupy 12 or 13%. So they are. And the gap between the for-profit and the nonprofit sector is closing. You're paid just about the same. Mm -hmm. It's getting there. The problem is, one, you wouldn't find this in the for-profit sector, a founder starting an organization without some needs assessment. Mm. But that's not what happens in a nonprofit. A founder is moved by a, a vision, a mission, some government failure or market failure or contract failure. And they start their organization on their charismatic need, their experience, right? Yeah. And then they engage friends and family who serve as like the first board of directors. Right. And the first donors. Yeah. And first donors. Yeah. You really a very captivated donor audience, right? And they serve on boards without term limits and really without understanding that the board is really the legal entity in charge that once an organization gets to a certain stage, the founder is an employee and can be fired and often, according to the research, should be. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at founder syndrome and I'm liking it, likening it to unchecked trauma, right? Because it is like, right? It is like a festering wound within a body, organization or business. By the way, startup, I could say st startup <laughs> founder because- Or family businesses, I turned yeah. the mirror over to you, totally. Family businesses and for my startup clients, founders of startup businesses. So can be like a festering wound within a body. What happens if that founder's syndrome goes unchecked? That's really, the, that's a huge problem. And let me tell you why. First of all, we don't yet have any reliable measurement, any reliable instrument to say that a founder is indeed suffering from founder syndrome. Mm. What we have is a lot of conjecture, like some articles in the late 90s sort of talked about something called founder, uh, founderitis. Not until like 2002 did the first empirical sort of examination of like, are founders different than non-founders? And, and, you know, we, we found that they are, they, they, they are different. We, we know that they are. One way that there are is non-founder-led organizations raise more money than founder-led organizations. And the reason why is a new person coming in isn't tied to the story. They are tied to the original, whatever the trauma is. And they're able to survey the market, the the clients, the donor base, the landscape, and make adjustments to the mission where the founder is sort of tied to that mission because that's tied to their ego and that's tied to their story that may be tied even sometimes to their own, to the trauma which initiated the, the organization in the first place. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so I can see from a 
founder's perspective, but I imagine founder syndrome has a trickle down effect. Oh yeah. On others. So that festering founder syndrome unchecked also has a organizational effect. Yeah. What's the, what's that effect? That's really interesting because, you know, like, just like uh, my colleagues on the medical side of science, while I'm on the psychological side of science, you know, most research is sort of born out of something that happened to the researcher that they're trying to understand. I mean, this is a phenomenon of something that we're trying, I'm trying to understand, like, what happened to me? Mm-hmm. I was twisted and turned upside down. And I'm not easily twisty, turny, upside downy. <laughs> So there is something really interesting happening here. And even as I went, like, it took me a little while to sort of find my voice just because I was trying to be deferential. And also like the, the, it's weird. They were, they were my client before. And so trying to rebalance that, which is why we don't, we don't have complicated relationships with, with clients. But what I saw happen in the organization was real, real trauma. And I got to see it under the lights of the incoming pandemic. Mm. I saw people leaving jobs where they were being paid really low salaries, like $15, $18 an hour, leaving without a job. Mm. The, the problem is in certain municipalities or certain states, Mine is one of them. I live in California. Once an organization reaches 50 or so people, then they are liable or they have to be compliant to the same employment laws as as a large organization. And what the problem is that my research is sort of turning up is the rampant disregard for employees' rights. Mm. There's, there's not the kind of oversight that you would have in a for-profit. And there is very little sort of social consequence mm-hmm. for a founder behaving badly because, you know, the cronies, they're, they're the people, and I'm using cronies in a, in a very deliberate way, not as a pejorative, but as, an, as a description, handpicked people who may or may not have, you know, have their own trauma. And don't necessarily want to rock the boat, don't want to confront the founder, maybe don't want to deal with the histrionics or they don't, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't find, you don't find that in the for-profit sector. If a founder is behaving badly, the marker will correct it. Yeah. What struck me is, I'm not sure if you noticed, if you saw this too, I think that there is this inherent wound that comes from as much as nonprofits are big and cool and becoming more like businesses, there is still this thing about scarcity. Sure. And that thing about scarcity is like being the ugly child in the family. And we're just lesser. We're just not, we can do things scrappier. We can have less people. We can pay them less. And that creates its own wound. It creates its own wound for the people who were there. Oh, for sure. Right. And so that scarcity then creates all sorts of behaviors that perpetuate themselves. Like it's okay not to pay us much because we're doing good work. 
right? Mm-hmm. We get paid in God's love or whatever, whatever right? Mm-hmm. And where, and this is possibly even bringing in my own experience, my own experience, one, of bringing, you know, my own trauma into my work world and having worked in nonprofits, there is a definite sense of some behaviors are okay that are just not okay in the business world. And it's so fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so dysfunctional. Yeah. And it's, I don't know why it's okay. And I hope now I've been away for nearly six years. I hope that things have changed. They have not. I'm sorry to hear that. They have not. Well, I, what I mean to say by they have not, like there has not been like some reckoning in the last six years. In fact, in many ways it's gotten, you know, it's gotten worse. Yeah. Because I mean, if think of what's going on in the country, Right. In the world. Well, that's true. There, yes. There's just no way that that problem right. could be different given right. the backdrop. That's right. Kinder gentler is not, it's not the scent. Yeah. We're not uh, piping no, that in. Yeah. No, yeah. we're piping something in, but not yeah. that. No. And by the way, scarcity is the marketing plan. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. If, if a nonprofit is being abundant, something's wrong. Right. Yeah. Or if a nonprofit founder is being abundant, something might be wrong. Right. Imagine if the marketing plan was, let's go out of business. Yeah. Because, right? Because we are so abundant. Yeah, not all businesses. Not all, I think we were talking about this before. Like when I take on an, a client for executive coaching, I will only contract with you for 10 sessions and maybe 10 more sessions after that, after 20 sessions. No. Yeah. So like my job as a coach is for you not to need me. Yeah. Yeah. My job as a coach is for you to be completely reliant on me as I manipulate you and with your head. (laughs) (laughs) I hope my clients are listening. (laughs) Trade market. Trade market. I fuck with you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's my coaching. It is. It's you know how I coach people. What's really what I love and why I, I wanted to, why I really want to have this conversation with you. Uh, I'll say it here so that it's like so it, it's here and it, it, it can serve as memo to the record. We are going to work together. It's here and it's now. We're going to work together. What are you working on? (laughs) What I'm working on right now is more in my head than in my world. I have been working on letting go of this fog that I've been in since the beginning of 2022. And it's on Monday of this week. So Monday was the 14th that it was Valentine's Day. I declared it was gone. And it's fascinating because it lifted. So what happened beginning of 2022, I flew home Hmm. from spending eight weeks in Florida with my parents, um, which sounds great, but it has, its (laughs) it is, it's a beautiful setting, has its challenges. There's lots of dementia and short-term memory issues there. It's a beautiful setting and lots of family Hmm. and lots of love. And I came home and January 2nd, I had COVID. Oh, 
Yeah. And then I think it was like January 7th. I blew my hamstring out. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. And then a few, <laughs> I don't even know how many days later, something happened to my knee. It was probably related to my hamstring where like the instability sure. caused my knee to just go cuckoo. I, it has just been a series of like weird things. My mother-in-law was living, my nearly 91-year-old mother-in-law was living with us and has been since mid-November. Anyway, she moved out last Friday, a week mm -hmm. ago today, um, as we're rec recording this. I declared I was done. Mm -hmm. Oh, here was another thing. People were mm. reaching out. They want to be my client. They want to get closer to me. I could not build my business. Mm. I mm. mean, <laughs> it's fast. this has never happened to me. Mm. So Monday came and two people came from the past who I haven't talked to in a while. And they're like, let's do it. Mm. Beautiful people who wonderful, wonderful people people who I've been talking to for quite a while. And someone reached out and said, let's do some teamwork. So I do team coaching as well. Oh, so cool. that showed up. And the thing that I'm working on around that mm. is that is not a sign of okayness, mm. right? Mm -hmm. That isn't a sign of anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Money in the bank and it's interesting in the personal growth world, there are mm -hmm. lots of messages that say it is. Mm -hmm. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening in here inside. And especially when it comes to like the building of coaching practices like that is a that whatever. Yes, I suppose <laughs> if you're building a business, having some having money, having, having business, is business, having, business, having right. business is business, but that does not. It's not the measurement of your okayness. Yeah. Like we are so attached to our results. Yes. It's the have, do, be. Yes. You know, if I have X, Y, Z, then I'll do, mm -hmm. you know, then I'll finally do, you know, if, 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 I, if I have enough money, then I'll finally like do what I really want and then I'll be happy. Right. And that's the bass awkward way. It, that's, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. And yes, we have to have some relationship to our results so that, you know, let's not lose our minds. Right. But we are like, it's the same thing. Like there's a difference between having something and being attached to something. Yes. Having it or it having you like it's compulsion really. Cause I mean, to be human being is to be an addict. Yeah. The whole, the whole gig of human being is I want more, like stop breathing, you know, hold your nose right now. And what's really important, the next breath. That's right. I, I wanted to, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll get together for another conversation because well, the thing that, that I really thought about, like what our work, like I was trying to find like the through line in our work. Mm. And I think the through line that for me that I saw is like, I've spent 30, 35 years of my, of my career talking about this one concept, resistance versus acceptance. Oh, love it. There's a part two coming. I spent 35 years talking about that. It's the huge, it's the biggest spiritual mm. law, practice, mm -hmm. obstacle, lesson. Yeah, I don't always do it well, but I'm always working on it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you, what has been most helpful for you as you're in the Trauma Hiders Club? 
Well, um, really remembering that I have a choice. Mm-hmm. I was listening to the, the most recent David, I forgot his name. Oh, he yeah. Like David the, Taylor Klaus. Yeah. The, un, the episode about the unwritten yeah. rules. To remember that what's happening to me, that there is a world out there. But the world that's out there isn't the world objectively that I think is happening. The world that's happening is subjective to my, like whatever you're looking for, you're going to find. And that I can shift my perspective, even if I don't really fucking believe it Mm. right away. I can shift, you know, like that whole fake it team. I can shift and where just like, the Fosbury Fox, Dick Fosbury, who pioneered the, the, the high jump by running toward the, the bar, twer- twerking his body and going head first backwards. It's not intuitive what this is. And you don't even have to know where you're going. You just have to throw yourself there and throw up your head first because it's the hugest fucking thing on your body and the rest of you will follow. In Vogue, I already told us, free your mind, the rest will follow. Ooh, love that. <laughs> love that. That's a great way to close the show. Oh my gosh. I love right, it. This is so fun. Thank you so much. This is like, I can check this off my list. That's right. You did it. Yes. You saw it. You said it. You bid it. You totally. beat it. You beat totally. whatever that I was. Beat it. Beat you it. beat it. This was great. I'm so glad you were here. Thanks, Karen. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.